Um, so the Bible reading tonight comes from 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. So there was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. They brought the boy to Eli and she said to him, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here before you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord humbles and exalt, and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with his princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. It is not by strength that one prevails. 
The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Thanks so much, Georgia, for that reading tonight. Uh, Why don't you guys uh, join with me in prayer for just a moment. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for these words, for this reading. I pray that tonight as we study them together, as we look at them together, that you will open our ears, you'll bless us, you'll help us to hear your voice. I thank you that you love each of us, and it's your desire here tonight to meet with each of us and speak to each of us. I pray that we have open hearts. I pray that we have open ears. I pray that we'd be ready to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this week we are starting a series on the life of David that we're calling the Once and Future King, which is going to be based on First and Second Samuel. So why David? I guess that's the first question. Well, first for two reasons. Number one, there's more information on David in the scriptures than on anyone else other than Jesus. So David is clearly an important character throughout the biblical narrative, and so it's important for us to study him. Second, the promised Messiah was often referred to as the what? The son of? Hello? Son of David. And so as Jesus is fulfilling his ministry, Israel is recognizing that there's something going on in the life of Jesus which fulfills what God has promised to his people all the way back to King David. In fact, all the way back to this moment that we're looking at tonight with this little story about a woman named Hannah. So if we want to understand the gospel as comprehensively as we can, then we need to look at the life of David because the life of David shows us so much about what Jesus came to do. David was not a success in all of his endeavors. So in his failures, we see how Jesus fulfills or overcomes David's weaknesses, but also in David's triumphs, we see how that points ultimately to the victory of of Jesus as well. So tonight, however, we're not going to start with David directly, but with this story about a woman named Hannah, which is right at the opening chapters of 1 Samuel. Hannah is a crucial yet often overlooked figure in David's story. And her life, I believe, has something really powerful to say to us tonight. Now, the first thing I want to do, however, before we begin, is point out that, yes, this is a story about infertility. But I don't think that we should read this story as a model for how you should walk through a season of infertility if that's what you're going through in your life. Or maybe you will go through that at some point in your life. I don't think the point of this story is to tell us how to respond to a season of infertility or a situation of infertility Uh, and the pain that that brings. But more broadly, it gives us principles about how we're meant to live our lives as followers of Jesus, as faithful men and women of God. And so that's what we're going to explore tonight. Uh, So who is Hannah? I'm really thankful to Tim Keller for his background context on this story, uh, which I'm drawing on quite a bit tonight. But first of all, who's Hannah? The first thing we learn about Hannah is that she is a woman in deep, deep distress deep distress, and she's weeping, we're told, day and night. Now, Hannah's husband, Elkanah, had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah was bearing children. She already had many sons. Hannah, on the other hand, was unable to bear children. So Peninnah is mocking 
and taunting and bullying Hannah about this until Hannah can't eat, her soul is downcast, and she is weeping bitterly before the Lord day and night. This is Hannah's situation. This is the woman we're introduced to here. Now, a lot of people I've spoken to over the years think that the Bible in some way supports polygamy, um, particularly the Old Testament. Well, one of the most brilliant Old Testament scholars alive today, a guy named Robert Alter, notes this, that throughout the Old Testament, polygamy is never depicted, never depicted in a positive light. Over and again, it is seen as a disaster for families, but especially for women. Therefore, anyone reading the Old Testament thinking that it supports polygamy simply hasn't been looking at these stories closely enough. So if you're looking for something to support the idea of polygamy, we're not Mormons here, or its modern variant, polyamory, it's a terrible idea, and all you have to do is read the scriptures to see why. We need to be careful, friends, I'm sure you all know this, but let me just say it, we need to be really careful that just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible is endorsing it. So why is Hannah in despair? We really have to put this into context. See, in ancient societies and ancient cultures, everything, everything depended on the family. The country, the security of the, of the country, economics, everything depended on the family and in particular on the fertility of women. More children meant more prosperity, right? The larger the family, the more people you had to work the farm. People didn't grow up, leave home, go off to college and start a career somewhere else. Most families ran a family business and if you were a child raised in that family, you were expected to take on that business when you're of working age. And so more children meant more employees, as it were, to work the farm, which meant more prosperity, which meant a more comfortable life. Speaking of which, children were also your retirement plan. There were no superannuation funds in the ancient world, so you had to have as many children as possible to take care of you in your old age. So lots of children meant lots of people to look after you, give, keep you comfortable when you're no longer able to work. And in fact, if you didn't have children, that was a disaster because there would be no one to take care of you when you can't work anymore. You're in a very difficult situation. You have no security. Third reason relates to national security. Unless a country had lots of children, it was vulnerable to invasion and colonization by another larger nation. It was going on all the time in the ancient world because warfare in the ancient world was basically a matter of statistics. The country with the bigger army, aka more children, meant they were able to win the battles, take over other nations, absorb their people, take over their wealth. Warfare in the ancient world was basically about numbers of uh, people on the, on, on the battleground. So a bit like playing Risk. Anyone here played Risk before? You know what I'm talking about. So lots of children meant greater security and power. Uh, you needed to have a lot of children to advance the interests of the nation. Not to mention the devastating infant mortality rate that most people throughout history have had to face. You had to have 10 or more children at that time uh, in order to see maybe four or five of them grow up to adulthood. Just think about that. I mean, ordinary people coped with the level of grief and pain that we, have, we just have no concept of, right? And I remember actually a professor of mine in Canada, uh, his family lived on the prairies. He had grandparents that ran a farm on the Canadian prairies, which is a really, really hard place to live and work and, and, and make ends meet. Um, his grandmother had 14 children 
and she buried eight of them before they reached the age of 10. That was barely 100 years ago, right? In the Western world, until very recently, women took a massive risk to have children, as many still do in most of the world. It's a dangerous thing to bear children. So for all these reasons, since everything in the society hung on the fertility of women, a pregnant woman was a cultural hero. You need to hear that. A pregnant woman was a cultural hero. And the more children you had, especially the more sons you had, the more significance and status you enjoyed as a woman at that time. But here we meet Hannah, who is unable to have children. She was barren, and that is a devastating reality for her. In fact, barrenness in the Scriptures is quite literally used by the prophets as the metaphor for hopelessness. I have this quote by uh, Walter Brueggemann, brilliant Hebrew scholar. He writes this, that barrenness in any Hebrew text is the effective metaphor for hopelessness. Barrenness means there is no foreseeable future for your family, for yourself, or for your nation. Without children, there was no human power to invent a future. So this is the cultural weight of expectation uh, placed on women in the ancient world. And so Penina, who is taunting Hannah, provoking her, essentially represents in this story the voice of the culture. Penina in this story is the voice of the culture. She's saying to Hannah, if you can't bear children, you are nothing. You are hopeless. You are useless. You are a waste of space. Why are you even here? You should just go away. So on top of Hannah's no doubt very natural, normal desire to have children and the grief she would have felt about not being able to is this additional cultural weight and that is why she is in such great despair. Without raising children, she is not, in terms of expectations, contributing anything of value to the culture. She's a nobody and she's being mercilessly bullied for it. And you see that word irritate. Well, there's a word irritate in verse 6. Her rival provoked her and irritated her. That is way too weak a translation. The Hebrew there literally means to roar or to thunder. And in fact, in every other use of this word in the Old Testament, it speaks literally about storms. This is the only time it refers to the emotional state of a person. The only time. So what, is, what we're being shown here is that Hannah's interior emotional state was like a raging storm. She's roaring internally in agony. Uh, she has this storm raging in her soul. That's the pain that she's living with day and night. Maybe you've been through seasons in your own life where you have felt that too. Now, you might be tempted at this point Uh, to say how oppressive those ancient cultures were for women, and clearly they were in many respects. But I love what Tim Keller says about this. It's true that ancient collectivist cultures, which is what Israel was, most ancient cultures were, collectivist cultures, made the family the ultimate thing, right? We've talked about that for all the reasons I've already said. And if the family is the ultimate thing, then women hated themselves unless they were married and pregnant, right? But we live in an individualistic culture in which individual advancement is the ultimate thing. Do you agree with me? We're not in a collectivist culture anymore. We live in an individualist culture in which your individual advancement is the ultimate thing. 
So in our culture then, what matters is your individual achievements, the things associated with all of that, career and recognition and beauty and money, not just having children, but now we've got to have children that excel at everything, that are good at sport, that are good academically, that look good, that are well put together. And we parents feel like a failure unless our kids are matching up to the cultural expectations because we want them to succeed, maybe not for their sake, but certainly for ours, right? We feel this weight of pressure around us, and we all do, that we as individuals have to measure up to the cultural ideal. Do you agree with me? Because these things give us our sense of importance. And in our culture, unlike a collectivist culture, in our culture, you hate yourself if you don't have those individual success stories, if you're bereft of those symbols of status and importance. You feel like a nothing. You feel like a zero. You feel like a waste of space. So aren't people still being oppressed in our culture? Isn't that oppressive? Okay. Aren't women still being oppressed by uh, all of these cultural expectations? And of course, this applies to men as well. So what I'm trying to say here, friends, tonight is that there is no such thing as a non-oppressive culture. It's just a matter of which poison you have to drink. It's just our culture is obsessed with individual achievement instead of collective achievement, but it is still oppressive, and it's still deeply destructive for the people who don't measure up, right? Maybe you feel like you're one of those folks who is standing on the outside looking in. Everyone else is having a great time, but you don't know how to join in. Maybe you were the kid always picked last on the sports team. Maybe you never did that well at school. Maybe you don't feel beautiful. Maybe you have mental health issues and that makes you feel like you don't fit in, that there's something wrong with you. All of this is on you, right? That's the oppression of our culture. It's your problem. And if you can't fix yourself, well, no one else can. You're on your own. So every culture then has its paninas saying, you're hopeless, you're nothing, unless you have these things or have achieved these things. Every culture does that to you. Every culture has its paninas. But if you're a Hannah, if you've failed to live up to those expectations, then you're left weeping, roaring on the inside. You're an outsider. I love what the atheist author Alan de Botton says in his book, Status Anxiety. He writes this, It's on the slide. Every adult life, and indeed every culture, could be said to be defined by two great love stories. The first, the story of our quest for romantic love, is well known and well charted. Its vagaries form the staple of music and literature. It is socially accepted and celebrated. The second, the story of our quest for love from the world, is a more secret and shameful tale. If mentioned, it tends to be in caustic, mocking terms as something of interest chiefly to envious or deficient souls. Right, that's the background to his argument that really this list leads to snobbery. Or else the drive for status is interpreted in an economic sense alone. And yet this second love story is no less intense than the first. It is no less complicated or important or universal. And its setbacks are no less painful. There is heartbreak here And Hannah is heartbroken because she doesn't have the second of these great love stories working in her life. She is, culturally speaking, a failure. However, she does have the first of these two great love stories, right? We're told that Elkanah loves his wife, Hannah. He loves her. He gives her a double portion. 
uh, in verse 8, Elkanah comes to Hannah and says something that may have been quite unusually tender for a man of that time. He says to her, Elkanah would say to Hannah, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? What's Elkanah saying here? He's saying, Hannah, I'm sorry that you can't have children. I truly am, but don't listen to Penina. Don't listen to her. Don't worry about that. Don't you know how much I love you, right? Build your life around that. Shouldn't my love for you be enough? Shouldn't it be enough, right? That's the, that's the first great love story. I love you, Hannah. I, I'm, I, I, I want to be with you. You're the desire of my heart. Isn't that enough for you? And I just want us to step back and put ourselves in Penina's shoes for a minute. No wonder she behaves so terribly toward Hannah when she's living with a man she knows does not love her, will sleep with her when, when he wants another baby, but otherwise has no interest in her at all, and his affection is for Hannah. No wonder Penina hates Hannah sees her as her rival. This is why polygamy is such a bad idea, just in case that wasn't clear for us tonight. She hates Hannah because she's heartbroken over her rejection. However, if Penina represents the voice of cultural hope, like to get love from the world, then Elkanah represents the voice of relational hope, to build your identity on romantic love, being in a relationship. That's the thing that will truly give you meaning. Isn't that what Elkanah is saying? Surely, Hannah, my love for you is enough. And don't we hear that all the time in our culture? Love is enough. Love will fulfill you. Find the right person to be with and it will you know, make all your dreams come true. It's a lie. No human person can satisfy the deepest needs of your heart. And if you go into marriage, we had a beautiful marriage yesterday, beautiful wedding, Amy and Pepe, awesome. Uh, But if you go into marriage thinking that this person that you're marrying is going to fulfill you, it's going to be a disaster. There is no way that that person can meet that expectation. It's impossible. Romantic love cannot give you what you most desperately are searching for. Um, So Alain de Botton says these two main love stories of hope in our world is that you get fulfillment in life by pursuing one of those two paths, career success or relationship success. Sometimes, rarely, you might get both, but that's another myth in our culture, you know, the myth of the person who has it all, the great career, the great relationships, that hardly ever works out. If one or other of those two paths is supposed to lead to fulfillment, friends, then why aren't we happy? Because we are the richest, most accomplished most career-driven society that has ever lived on the face of this earth, and we are clearly not happy. There is so much mental health uh, issues going on. People are anxious and depressed and afraid of the future. With all of, you know, even if you're in a great relationship, everyone knows that it's not enough. Why are we not content? Why are we so anxious? De Bodden goes on to say, on the slide, we attempted to believe that certain achievements and possessions These great shiny things will give us an enduring satisfaction. We are invited to imagine ourselves scaling the steep cliff of happiness in order to reach a wide, high plateau on which we will live out the rest of our lives. We are not reminded that soon after gaining the summit, we will be called down again into the fresh lowlands of anxiety and desire. Have you ever achieved something that you really wanted gain something that you really wanted, realize after a little while, actually, it's not satisfied me at all. Certainly not in the way that I thought it would. 
are reminded of the story of the fisherman and the businessman. You might have heard this one. A wealthy businessman was walking along the beach when he was horrified to see a fisherman sitting lazily by his boat playing games with his son. Why aren't you out fishing? There's still lots of time in the day to catch more fish, said the businessman. Well, because I've caught enough fish for today, replied the fisherman. But you could go out and catch some more, said the businessman. Well, what would I do with them, said the fisherman. Well, you could sell them and earn more money, said the businessman. Well, what would I do with that? Well, with the extra money, you could buy a bigger boat, go into deeper waters, catch more fish, then you could make enough money to buy larger nets, and with those nets, you could catch even more fish and make even more money, and with that money, you could own two boats, maybe even three boats, and then eventually you could have a whole fleet of boats and be as rich as me. And the fisherman said, well, then what would I do? And the businessman said, well, then, then you could enjoy your life. The fisherman looks quizzically at the businessman and says, well, what do you think I'm doing now? Instead of having these things that God gives us, career, relationships, all of that, instead of having these things and receiving them as gifts from God to give glory to God, we end up pursuing these things for their own sake, right? And that really is a kind of madness, right? That's the madness of an addict who thinks that by getting more and more, they'll be fulfilled, and yet it's less and less satisfying over time. But there is a decisive moment in Hannah's story which, to my mind, makes her one of the great heroes of the Bible. And I don't say that lightly. I think Hannah is, in this story, intended to be understood as one of the great heroes of the Bible. Now, she doesn't slay any great enemies like Goliath. She doesn't lead a great army to, vic to victory. But she did something heroic, something which very few of us can do. In verse 9, it says this, Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. She stood up. Now, in Hebrew, this phrase is literally, she arose. And it's not talking about the physical action of standing up. But she has made a decision. Hannah has made up her mind about something. She arose, she stood up. You might say she put her foot down and she said, enough of this, enough of this. Now, Robert Alter again says, in this passage, the fact that she doesn't respond to Penina and she doesn't respond to Elkanah, like she doesn't give them answers to their questions or their taunting, but instead goes to God, goes to the tabernacle to pray, means that she is refusing to listen to their voices. I think we actually have that on the slide. She is refusing to listen to their voices. Hannah decides to refuse both of those voices, the cultural lie and the relational lie. And instead, she goes directly to God. Hannah decides that she does not want to be defined by what society thinks of her, and she doesn't want to be defined either by, by even by her husband's love. She doesn't want to build her identity on either of those things, so instead she goes to God, because I think in the midst of her pain, she realizes something about the nature of what is going on here, that she will not find fulfillment from having children, she will not find fulfillment from her husband, she needs to find her fulfillment, her identity, her purpose, her meaning from someone else that can actually reach into the deepest places in her soul and meet her there. She has to receive that only from God. Are you with me? So what does she do when she goes to God? 
In verse 10, now she's not happy at this point. She's still in deep anguish. In verse 10, in deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord Almighty, weeping bitterly. She's made up her mind, but man, is she in pain. Which, by the way, I think says that we can make decisions about our lives without first feeling the emotions that surround the importance of those decisions. Are you with me? She made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now what's going on here? Like at first it kind of looks like she's bargaining with God, right? She's making a deal with God. Hey God, I'll honor you if you give me a son. That's the deal. But that isn't what's going on here. What's actually happening is that following the prayer it says, Hannah went away and ate and was no longer downcast. Think about it. If Hannah was bargaining with God, she wouldn't have had any peace or a change of heart until after she knew she was pregnant. Until she saw God's answer. Then she would have known that God had heard her prayer. Then she would have had peace. But that's not what happens. Hannah departs from the prayer already at peace. Her face is lifted up long before she has any inkling of how God is going to answer her. It is not a bargain. In Genesis 29, we, we see a bargain where Rachel, who's also barren, says to God, give me children or I die. That's a bargain. But that's not Hannah's prayer. That's completely different. What I want you to see here is that in this moment of going to God in the tabernacle and crying out to God in her distress, something has shifted in Hannah's soul, in this moment, something powerful, something beautiful has shifted in Hannah's soul. What she's doing before God, friends, is she is getting rid of her absolute need to have children. She still wants a child. She asks for one. But she's asking God to change the nature of her desire for a child. Now, we've talked about this before, probably ad nauseum, and I'm sorry about this if, if it's all very boring to you, but... From where does our spirituality flow? From our desires. So Hannah is still asking for a son, but what she's also praying for in this moment is, Lord, change the nature of my desire here. There's something not right in me that needs to be changed in order for me to walk with you with faith and with hope in the midst of my barrenness. So here's what she's actually praying. If you give me a child, I will give him to you. If you give me a child, I'll give him to you. And that's a prayer that all of us have to pray with everything that we have. With my career, Lord, I give it to you. With my relationships, I give it to you. With my money, I give it to you. With my pain, I give it to you. With my success, I give it to you. With my achievements, I give it to you. With my beauty, I give it to you. My lack of beauty, I give it to you. It doesn't matter what is going on in your life. Everything about you needs to be constantly and continually laid down as an act of worship and devotion to the living God. Any other path that you walk will lead you to worship idols. 
either your career or your relationships or even the idea of having children. She says, no razor will ever touch his head. So what she's actually doing here is offering her son as a Nazarite. In other words, he'll become a priest to serve in the temple who was not born of the tribe of Levi. So there are two ways you could become a priest. You could be born a Levite, made you a priest by birth, or you could be a Nazarite, which is a priest by choice. And that required you to make certain vows, never to shave, you had to shave your head, you couldn't drink alcohol, you couldn't marry. There was a whole bunch of things that came along with it. Hannah is offering her son, who his name is Samuel, to be a Nazarite in the temple for all the days of his life. What she's saying is, Lord, I still want a child, but now I want it for your sake, not just for mine. I want it for your sake, not just for mine. Think about what Hannah is doing here. She is giving up the right to raise her son, to be denied that deep emotional bond that exists between a mother and a child, except for a very brief period of time. It's said that she would, once the child was weaned, which may be 18 months, two years, I don't know, once the child was weaned, then the child would be handed over to the priests to raise from that time onwards. She is choosing to be exiled from a particular vision of motherhood. Before she had no choice, but now she's choosing it willingly in order to ensure that her life is dedicated to God. Are you with me? She's killing the idol. She's killing the idol. She's slaying the idol. She's realized through her suffering that the only place that she can truly find her hope, her joy, and her fulfillment is in God. Think about it. Penina has all the children, but she's not happy because she doesn't have her husband's love. Having children is not enough. Hannah has her husband's love, but she doesn't have the children, and she's miserable. Having love is not enough. So Hannah's suffering has brought her wisdom. In her prayer, she's saying, my fulfillment will not come from my social standing, even from the love of another person, or even from the love of a child. My heart can only be fulfilled in you, Lord. Even the love of a child, if she, I think, maybe, I don't know, maybe she had realized at that moment that if she had received the child in her brokenness, then she would have suffocated and destroyed the child by needing to receive from it what that child could not possibly give her. She would have suffocated and crushed that child with her need for its love. Right? And as, as a parent, that's something I have to watch all the time. I cannot get my fulfillment from my children. That's not fair on them to begin with. They didn't ask for that. But secondly, one day they're going to grow up and leave home, and who will I be then? What will I have then? Right? I can't put my hope in my kids as much as I love them. And likewise... And all of you guys who are not married yet, don't have children yet, make sure that you do not make idols out of your children and do not suffocate them with your idols of success. In other words, don't put on them your failed hopes. Don't live vicariously through your children. It will destroy them. And again, I try very hard to not do that with my own kids, but, you know, things pop up, right? I want my kids to succeed, but sometimes I have to ask, do I want them to succeed for their sake or because that will make me look like a really great dad? This is a really hard road that Hannah has chosen. I'm not 
shying away from that at all. But friends, it is a road that all of us have to walk, I believe, especially as followers of Jesus, as we confront our own idols, because Jesus said, what will it profit you if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? You can get everything this world can offer you, but if your heart's not devoted to Jesus, it will destroy you. So we've all got to come to a Hannah moment in our lives, all of us. There's nothing wrong with having a great career, being in a wonderful relationship or having children. Nothing wrong with any of those things. The problem is when those things own you, when you need them in order to feel fulfilled, to have a meaningful life, that makes you a slave. But God wants you to be free, doesn't he? It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And our only true freedom comes when there is nothing that owns us except that we have chosen to devote our lives to the living God. When we choose to take up our cross, that was Hannah's cross, you have your own cross to take up in order to follow Jesus. Okay, Only you know what that is. You and the Lord, you know what that is. And I'm not saying that all you then need to do is pray a prayer like Hannah and everything will be okay. I am definitely not saying that. This was Hannah's story. You've got to live your story. You've got to walk your road. You have to walk with Jesus for yourself, okay? But if you have walked a road like Hannah, when you look at other people uh, and you see what other people have and it hurts you, it really hurts you, it feels like there's a knife in your chest, you feel like life hasn't worked out for you, you feel afraid and alone uh, and scared about the future, I want you to consider something with me for a moment and I'm going to finish with this. Despite everything that stood against Hannah, God answered Hannah's prayer in a way that she could never have possibly conceived of. Yes, God gave her a son, but he gave her way more than that. Way, way, way more. Uh, And you get hints of this in her prayer in chapter 2, which is why I included the prayer. Hannah prayed a prayer like this at a time when... Does anyone know what was going on in Israel at this time when Samuel was born? It comes at the end of the book of Judges, right? Has anyone read the book of Judges? Give me a show of hands. How does the book of Judges end? In disaster. Israel is in chaos. Uh, the, the tribes are divided. They're at war with each other. Like This is nothing like the vision God had for his people. And it looks like it's all going to fall apart. Like It really does. There's been a crime committed in Israel that has been so shocking to the people that they wonder now if God will even remain with them. You read the stories for yourself. It's a horrific story. I don't want to recount it here. It's so gross that the people of Israel, the faithful ones anyway, say, surely God is going to abandon us now. He could not bear with us after this. And yet, excuse me, God raises up Hannah. That's why she's, sorry, why am I getting so emotional? God raises up Hannah at a time when Israel was in total chaos, a nobody from nowhere that no one's ever heard of. And he puts his finger on her life in the midst of her pain, calls her to do something of incredible, an act of incredible faith. And it changes the nation. Through Hannah comes Samuel. Samuel is used by God as one of the greatest prophets in Israel to bring the people of God back together He anoints Saul as king, that's good for a while, and then eventually he anoints David as the king of Israel, who leads Israel to its greatest period of peace and prosperity. 
and becomes the model for whom the, what the Messiah will eventually, uh, the promised line of the Messiah will eventually take up David's mantle. All through this nobody called Hannah, who in her pain and by her faithful prayer, God used to reshape the whole nation. She had no idea that this was what was going to happen. She just trusted in the Lord. And so what I want to say to you tonight, friends, is that I believe no matter how you may be feeling about your life, about your circumstances right now, maybe you're in a situation like Hannah, I just call you to not give up hope, but to trust in the one who promises to be with you always and to glorify himself through your life if you'll walk with him by faith and devotion. If you are obedient to him, he will bless you and empower you and work through you in ways that you could not possibly imagine. And that's Hannah's song. At the end, we get this beautiful song of hope, uh, this prayer of deliverance, this prayer that praises the God who notices the weak and the poor and the excluded and the powerless and the rejected and the hopeless and the barren people. And by the way, it has some strong resonances to another prayer that a young woman prays many, many hundreds of years later. Did any of you notice it? When the angel visits Mary, yes, and Mary prays her Magnificat, she is very clearly drawing on Hannah's prayer, very clearly. In other words, Mary is standing in Hannah's blessing. What Hannah did had echoes for hundreds of years into the future till God chose another young woman and said, now the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come. Will you be obedient? And I am sure that Mary was able to say yes because she knew the story of Hannah's life. She was able to say, let it be to me according to your word. And she was able to declare, or in fact, it's the angel who declares the words that, that Hannah prays. You have found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So I want you to understand, friends, that I know it's very difficult, but sometimes we get so myopic, we, we, we judge the meaning of our life by just what's happening day to day for each of us. But our life has an eternal resonance, and if we'll trust in the one who is with us moment by moment, he will do things through us that will carry on for generations. Like what you do with your life will bless others that will go on to bless others. Maybe you'll have children if you bless them to, to raise them in the Lord, they will carry that forward to their children and their children's children. And it has an impact over generations across families and it changes nations. And that's why I love this last verse, almost the last verse in Hannah's prayer. Verse 10, it's on the screen. I love this. In fact, I think this might be a, a, one of the best summaries of the whole message of the Bible that I can think of. Verse 10 of her prayer, she says, It is not by strength that one prevails, but only by the power of the living God. It is not by strength, your strength, your capacity, your intelligence, your achievements that we prevail, but only by the power and the help of the living God. And if you will trust him, he will do wonderful and marvelous things through you. But don't judge God's actions in your life by how you feel. 
or what may be happening at any given moment, day to day. Lift your eyes up higher, have an eternal perspective, and see that God is at work in this world through you and through others, through all of us, in ways that are incredible and beautiful and just simply go beyond anything that we could ever hope or imagine. And so Hannah's life points us all the way to Jesus because at the very end of Hannah's prayer, she says, you will raise up the horn of your king, your anointed one. She has never heard of King David. There's no kings in Israel at this time. She is prophesying the coming of the Messiah. What a great privilege for a woman who has nothing, who's a nobody, whose life has been nothing but pain, and yet God notices her, he remembers her, and he calls her to be the one of the forerunners of the Messiah. Isn't that incredible? Just imagine what God might want to do through your life if you'll trust him. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that it is not by strength that we prevail, but it is by the power of the living God. As Hannah prayed, he is our rock. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. My heart will rejoice in God, my Savior. And Lord, I thank you that you are at work always, every day in secret moments, quiet moments, ways that we don't see. Even when we don't see it, you're working. Thank you, Jesus. Friends, I just want to invite you just to take a moment to wait on the Lord. If anything has come up for you tonight, if you felt the Lord speaking to you, just press into that for a moment. Just say, Lord, I thank you. Thank you that you're speaking. Oh, Lord, give me the courage to trust you. Come, Holy Spirit, and help me to overcome my fears, to resist the voice of the culture, to submit every desire of my heart to you, Lord, I give you my heart and I ask that you would shape it according to your love. Renew my heart, renew my desires. Put a right spirit within me. Thank you, Jesus. And I thank you that uh, there are women and men here in this room tonight whom you have called by your name. You have filled them with your Holy Spirit and they will do wonderful and marvelous things as they walk with you. They may not look like much in the eyes of the world, but from your point of view, from your perspective and from an eternal perspective, they will change lives. They will change culture. They will change the world. Not by their own strength, but by yours. In fact, it's in our weakness that your strength is made perfect. So, Lord, we embrace our weakness. We embrace our sufferings. We embrace our brokenness. We praise you, even in those places of pain, that you are at work and that our story isn't finished yet and you have awesome things in mind, awesome things that you're going to do. And I thank you that it's accessible for all of us because it just comes by simple trust and obedience. As we love our neighbors, as we encourage our friends, as we pray, 
we search out the scriptures, as we seek to be obedient, Lord, you move in those ways. You move in those places and you go way, way beyond all we could ask or imagine according to your power that's at work within us. But Lord, I do want to pray for anyone who feels uh, some deep pain tonight. Maybe they're in distress. I pray in the name of Jesus that you just come and comfort them. Come and be with them. Remind them that you are here, you are near, you've not forgotten them. And I pray that you begin to heal what is broken, begin to heal what's hurting. Thank you, Jesus. And maybe we need to forgive our parents because they put expectations on us that have been a weight in our lives. Or maybe we felt they withheld love and affection unless we achieved enough, did enough. Oh God, we we do pray you forgive our parents. But Lord, we also want to acknowledge that ultimately you are our Father. And only in your love can we find our deepest fulfillment, our deepest meaning, our deepest satisfaction. So come Holy Spirit and renew in us a love for the Father, just as he loves us. And I pray that that would heal those places in us where we might feel angry with our parents, disappointed, hurt. Perhaps even we're carrying some trauma. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Why don't you just spend some time before the Lord, whatever's on your heart. Just take some time to pray. Well, I just pray right now in the name of Jesus that you just, Lord, seal this time, uh, this time of ministry. Just cover over each of us with your love and protection. And I do pray, Lord, that if you have planted anything in our hearts tonight, seeds of the gospel, that they would not be snatched away by the evil one. In Jesus' name protect us from him and guide us in the way of everlasting in Jesus name amen I invite you to stand guys we're going to sing uh, another song together